recognize are looks of recognition. Mm. So that's why you know you can you can actually punk people by looking like you recognize them, and they'll recognize you right back. Um, so that was not my intention. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. Who are you with? Um, John Burton. I took a bite. <laughs> the good ones. The great graveyard. Which one do you need? I it doesn't look, it doesn't look that way to us. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> to yeah. us, he looks well, like a sophomore. Lost. I've known him since he was a sophomore. Oh, really? Yeah, they had oh, a five-back for me. I was three. Uh, I was three. Uh, if you, he was a sophomore, yeah, I was three. Yeah, yeah. Would you remember yeah. when we were on film okay. together? And then I'll, I'll bring it on the You day. and I and John Burt. And he told me afterwards, there the two of you were. You were. And then there was this old man who seemed to be my father. Yes. It wasn't so. I decided. Okay, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm a good sharer. So. <clears throat> okay, uh, a new configuration of people. I don't think we've had the same configuration twice. It's like a Heraclitian river in this class. Um, but if if you feel on the spot, not looking at anyone, you're not the only one. At least two people feel on the spot. Okay. Um, what we're going to do is is um, be done with done today. Um, and we'll um, then spend two weeks on reading the Ben Johnson in the Norton 17th century volume that you don't own. I do own it now. Oh, you do? All right. That, Got it just for this class. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Um, so there are a total of 76 pages of Johnson, and um, so what that means, or 72 pages rather, I think. So what that means is let's just do 18 pages a class for four classes. Um, and so the first 18 pages, which is like page 57 to 75 or something for Tuesday. Um, and then we'll move on. Okay, so we were in the middle of Holy Sonnet 12, and if you're keeping track, I was looking up the um, Nicene Ring um, because I just wanted to um, see if I could get a good um, depiction of it. It's sometimes um, also called a shield, but it turned out I could only find it as the Athanasian Ring. So the Athanasian Creed is, a, is um, um, not... Oh, now I'm going to give you more inf misinformation. I believe it's after the Nicene Creed. Is that right? Do you know where? Which came well, first? Well, the Nicene was Creed itself was formulated as a response to the, um, the heresy that Athanasius believed in. Okay. Um, but at any rate, yeah. they, they do agree, but the actual name of the ring, that is the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. That's called the Athanasian mm -hmm. ring. Um, it may, I remembered it as the Nicene ring, and it may be that it is, but um, uh, I couldn't quickly find it. So, Well, it makes sense that they would be the same, because the, yeah. the, the Nicene Creed was formulated to counter the idea that... Christ was the first begotten being as opposed to being the same as God. Right. And the Nicene Creed says the same as God. Same as God, same but as not God. the same as the Father. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so so now you know. That's the that's that's the security patch on the Three Holy persons, Trinity. One being no subordination. Right. Okay. Three <laughs> persons, one being no subordination. Um, good. So um, here we have the naughty trinity. Um, this is again in the sonnet Father, part of his double interest. Um, and uh, since we have a lot of La Corona sonnets to go through, we'll, we'll just move um, with dispatch 
like three persons in a carriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or th yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> what that little anecdote? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes. Anecdote forty-two. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just about to tell it. Go on. Okay. Um, so, um, so father, part of his double interest unto thy kingdom, thy son gives to me. So the son has a double interest in the kingdom of the God of the father. Um, he keeps his jointure, just re, um, uh, reordering a little bit. He keeps his jointure in the naughty trinity, but he gives me his death's conquest, the thing that he conquered by his death, by his death. Um, this lamb whose death with life the world hath blessed was from the world's beginning slain. Um, so he has been, this is I think a crucial thing to understand that he's been slain from the very beginning of the world. Um, it's not that, um, um, this is something that Herbert will repeat also, it's not that there was one moment when um, when Jesus was slain. It's not that it happened once, but because in some sense God is outside of time, um, because what it means, and here's another theological distinction between um, um, sempiternity and eternity. Sempiternity means um, time going on forever. Eternity means the transcendence of time, and God transcends time. Um, so that the death of God, the death of the Son, is something that is true from the beginning of time, even though it occurs at a certain moment within time, from a perspective outside of time, it's always there. Um, so the, this lamb whose death with life the world hath blessed, the death of the lamb has blessed the world with life, was from the world's beginning slain, and he hath made two wills, which, with the legacy of his and thy kingdom, do thy sons invest. So what are those two wills, quickly? Yeah, the two testaments, the Old and the New Testaments. Um, the pun on the word will, and again, in, in Dunn, puns tend to be conceptual puns. If they're verbal puns, um, that's, um, that's gravy. Um, but what really matters is the conceptual pun, is that it's the will of God um, that is God's will be done. Um, it is the will of God that such and such should happen, but it's also the last will and testament, hence the two testaments. Um, so a will in, for human beings can represent, can represent what's left when you're dead. Um, someone reads your will. Um, you have no will except a document, which is um, the document called the Last Will and Testament. Um, for God, however, the will is both his living will and what he's left us, because God is both alive and dead. Um, he dies as Jesus, but his will is eternal and living as something which transcends time. And those two wills are the two testaments. He has made two wills which with the legacy of his and thy kingdom do thy sons invest. So we get the legacy of the kingdom that belongs to both Jesus and to God, um, and we are invested with that legacy. Yet, such are thy laws that men argue yet whether a man 
those statutes can fulfill. So um, the lo your laws are hard, and that's the idea of the Old Testament. Remember, that's why the Speaker in Redemption wanted a new small rented lease and to cancel the old because he was not thriving. Um, yet such are thy laws that men argue yet whether a man those statutes can fulfill. Um, we talked a little bit, and I'll just want to say a little bit more about something called covenant theology, because this is going to be um, an issue in Herbert as well. Um, and it's something that the doctrine of predestination um, was supposed to get you out of. So in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Abraham and with the chosen people. And essentially the covenant is, if you do your part, I'll do my part. And the problem is human beings can't do our part. Um, we're too weak, we're too sinful, we're too um, unable to stick to what we know we should do. And um, we can never be sure that we're doing our part, even if we think we are. We can never be sure that we're wholehearted about doing our part. So part of the idea against covenant theology, part of the Protestant idea of predestination, is that if you don't have free will, and if salvation doesn't come through works, that is through your doing um, the works that you are instructed to do by God, um, if that's not where salvation comes from, you don't have to worry at every moment whether at every moment you are doing what you were supposed to do in order to be saved. Um, worrying about this at every moment is um, something that we would otherwise do, and we would realize that we were failures. That is, that not every moment was devoted to the service of God because we're human beings, because we get distracted, because our minds wander, because people walk outside the room and we notice them and wave, and then we fail the course of life and don't graduate into heaven. Um, and um, therefore, if it turns out that instead um, we are saved by God's grace and that that grace takes the form of predestination, that is, we're born saved, those of us who are saved, um, then we should be grateful and we should... Um, perhaps worry about whether we're saved or not, but that worry would be the worry of, of um, love and desire rather than the worry of am I doing everything I should be doing. Um, the worry, will I be saved? Am I a person who has been saved? Um, that's a real worry, but it's not a worry by which you will torment yourself to do more. The worry itself is, in a sense, um, its own, and this you'll find this all over in Herbert, but the ideas are here and done already. The worry is itself its own comfort. Because if you're worried, it means you care. And if you care, that's pretty good evidence that you're saved. So the worry can be its own comfort as long as it's not too comforting, because if it's too comforting and you stop worrying, then maybe you should worry. Um, and that's the paradox. But if you're worried, then you can take some comfort. You're a fallen human being. You live in a fallen world, so you can't have full comfort. But you can take some comfort if you're worried 
that your worry is itself um, a reason not to worry. Um, this is, this is uh, I think, a familiar feeling in love as well. If you're worried, do you really love the person that you love? Do you really love your children? Do you really love your parents? Um, that worry is itself a sign that you do. And um, it doesn't mean you can relax about it entirely, but it also means that you don't have to simply feel terrible about yourself because you don't know. Whereas covenant theology, which is that if you do your part, God will be forced to fulfill his part of the contract, that puts you at odds with God. That means that God has um, a legal power over you to require you to do certain things, and you have a symmetrical power over God to require him to do certain things. The problem being God has no trouble at all doing everything that he is obliged to do um, if, if he is in fact obliged to do it. But humans, being finite and non-omnipotent creatures, have enormous amounts of trouble do, fulfilling our side of the bargain. Um, we ha we're the ones who have to spin straw into gold. Um, and all God has to do is marry us if we succeed. Much easier for God than for us. Um, so that's why covenant theology is so troubling and why Luther explicitly offered the Lutheran doctrine of predestination, um, the Lutheran doctrine of what he calls the bondage of the will, as a relief to the impossible pressures of covenant. So the idea is the Old Testament was, um, was covenant, was a legal bargain. Um, and men argue whether a man those statutes can fulfill. Can we do everything required by the Old Testament? Can we fulfill the, what is it, 512 commandments, I think it is, um, that the Talmud counts in the Old Testament? Um, or not. And um, if we fail to do one, if there's one time when we fail to fulfill a commandment, does that then mean that, sorry, look at the fine print. You know, you, you, ch you click the terms and conditions box and <laughs> that's it. Um, is it over for us? Um, the, um, there's a story about the Baal Shem Tov. Do people know who he is? kind of the um, founder of Hasidism, who lived an exemplary and absolutely wonderful life. I think it, the story is probably actually, I realize, um, stolen from Augustine. Um, it's not, it, but it's a story about him that um, nevertheless, he knew that all human beings were sinners and um, he was trying to think what sin did he ever commit? And he wasn't arrogant about it, um, but he was wondering, you know, all human beings are sinners and yet I've tried to live an exemplary life and can't remember any sins and he thought and thought and thought and then he remembered that his mother was trying to nurse him when he was six months old, and he kicked her breasts because he was in a bad mood. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm a sinner just like everyone else. Um, so um, that's the thing. If at six months old, and Augustine does say this, that we think of children as, as being pure and wonderful, but it's only that they're weak. Um, if a baby could do whatever it wanted to do, it would be as evil as you could possibly imagine. Um, what? Bastard. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Mm-hmm. And um, so it's weakness rather than innocence that you that um, you will find in human beings if um, they don't sin. And that means babies are sinners for Augustine. Um, and therefore would not be saved, would not fulfill the commandments. So thy, such are thy laws that men argue yet whether a man those statutes can fulfill, which, yeah. Oh, is your hand up? No. 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 Okay. Um, none doth. So we could say no one fulfills the statutes. Um, can they? Possibly, but no one does. None doth. But thy all-healing grace and spirit revive again what law and letter kill. So um, no one can fulfill those laws, but also no one except thy all-healing grace and spirit can revive again what law and letter kill. Do people know what that's a reference to? It's also really important to the Merchant of Venice the famous Pauline statement. Um, no, but the pound of flesh is what the law and the letter are demanding. Oh, an eye for an eye? Um, well, there is an eye for an eye, but it's um, what Paul says, famous line is, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when people say, you know, you don't have to fulfill the letter of the law, or the, the phrase the letter of the law is usually used disparagingly, um, as in, that's not what laws are about, fulfilling laws to the letter. Um, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Figuring out how to how to um, obey the law to the letter is being legalistic rather than moral. Um, so the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Um, so this, again, is what he's referring to. The all-healing grace and spirit of God revives again what law and letter kill. That is the Old Testament. Thy law's abridgment and thy last command is all but love. Not everything but love, as in, oh, he's, he's um, all but graduated. He only has to take English 1A. Um, it's um, only love. All but there means only. So thy law's abridgment. And abridgment there means what, anyone? To shorten. Um, shorten, but in what sense? Abridge is yeah. one, sorry? To make it easier. To make it easier, yeah, or to summarize it. Okay. Um, that is, abridgment sometimes means to cut off something that's important. Um, that's how it appears in Richard II when um, a character is going to have himself abridged by his head, <laughs> which is not such a good thing to happen to you, assuming you like your head. Um, <laughs> Or it can mean here, if you, wanna, if you want the abridged version of the law, if you want the whole of the law, um, as Yola Tango puts it, then it's, uh, oh, so yeah, dirty projectors, yes, Yola Tango, no, I don't know. <laughs> um, the whole of the law is love. That's all that it is. Um, the whole of the law is love. Um, that's the abridged version that gives you the, the essence and the essential is love. So thy laws abridgment and thy last command, your most important command, is all but love. Um, that's all it is. Oh, let that last will stand. 
Um, that is, let the last act of will, which is all that matters is to love, let that one stand. Let that stand. Yeah. No, you're, you're just, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, questions, comments? No? Good. Um, yes. All right, let's go to the La Corona sonnets. Uh, they are, what page are they on? Um, I think they're right after this, right? Or am I misremembering? What are they? 171. Okay, did people get what's going on in them? Yeah, but did you get what's the formal quality? So they, the La Corona sonnets, you have um, seven sonnets. That would mean that you would have how many different lines? Sonnets are 14 lines each. Multiply quick. Uh, 98. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't carry. I hate that. I was carrying. 70 plus 28 equals 98. In fact, how many lines are there? Anyone know? Exactly, that's the point, um, is that the last line of each sonnet is the first line of the next sonnet. So everyone got that reading it? It wasn't one of those, okay, I read a sonnet, I'm going to do some laundry. Oh, now I'll read sonnet number two, but you <laughs> forgot that, okay. Um, so they're, they form, why are they called La Corona then? Crown. Yeah, so they, they're about the crown or about various crowns, but they also form a crown because they're woven together. Um, so you so um, you weave one sonnet into the next into the next until finally you return to the first as though weaving a crown or a chaplet. Yeah, um, because the, the first line of one and the last line of seven are the same. Yes. So the, joining. Yeah. The top of them, yeah. Right. So they join together again. So deign at my hands this crown of prayer and praise. Weaved in my low, devout melancholy, thou which of good hast, yea, art, treasury, all changing, unchanged, ancient of days. So what does Dane mean there? <clears throat> yeah, and we would probably um, unabridge it as Dane to accept. Um, but Dane is actually good English for accept willingly at my hands this crown of prayer and praise. So the whole set of sonnets are a crown of prayer and praise that he is offering to God. Um, and he's describing his writing of it. So Dane at my hands this crown of prayer and praise weaved in my low, devout melancholy. Um, let's get, we'll get back to that. Because, of course, the last line of the last sonnet is going to be the first line of the first one. So let's get back to that. But just, just notice it. Dane in my hands, this crown of prayer and praise, weaved in my low, devout melancholy. So he's writing these sonnets, like the holy sonnets, in an experience of devotion, of um, abasement, and of melancholy. Um, thou, namely God, which of good hast, yea, art, treasury. Um, what's the difference between hast and art? Um, past and present. No. What is hast, what's hast in modern English? Have. Right. And art in modern English? Oh, are. Are, yeah. So you both have the treasury, you own the treasury of good, 
In fact, you're more than that. You are the treasury. You don't only own it, you are it. Are it. You are the all-changing, unchanged ancient of days. Um, what does all-changing mean there? Omnipotent? Omnipotent, yeah, able to change everything, every change that occurs in the world. So it's not that you're constantly changing. You're not, you know, it's not like the all-changing weather of New England. Um, it's that you change all things, but you yourself are the unchanged ancient of days. Where does that phrase come from? Daniel. Good. Do you agree, Daniel? <laughs> Came from you. Good. Um, all changing, unchanged, ancient of days, but do not with a vile crown of frail bays reward my muse's white sincerity. Um, can you make head or tail of that? Any of it? I mean, bays are like moral. Mm -hmm. So like, Pretending to follow you, don't reward the people who. Well, my own crown of. I mean, maybe I'm totally off, but Laurel, that makes me think of like, I don't know, like wedding, like May, May Day kind of like wedding thing. So, vile crown of festivity, I don't know. Well, who gets crowned with Laurel? People getting married? No. So, we're pagan. Pagan crown, in particular. Oh, is it like a, like a warrior? Anyone? The head poet in a country is called the oh, poet laureate. So who gets crowned with laurel? Poets. Uh -huh. Poets. Mm -hmm. Apollo, the god of poetry, mm. um, because he pursued uh, a woman. And, uh, Daphne. Good. Right, right. And uh, she, you know, she resisted the way the women do in the Greek myths when the <clears throat> male gods try to jump them. And <laughs> she turned into a tree the way they do. The tree she turned into is the oral tree. So Apollo made it sacred to himself, and Apollo is the god of poetry. So what he's saying is, do not, with a vile crown of frail bays, reward my muse's white sincerity. So what is he not looking for? Praise for his poetry. Praise for his poetry. Um, so he says, I'm offering you this crown that I made. Um, don't offer me back, in exchange, a vile crown, a frail base. Frail because poetry itself, or the rewards or the success of being a poet, that's a frail reward. Don't reward me with a vile crown of frail base. Do not reward my muses. Um, again, that tells you that it's poetry. My muses. White sincerity. It sounds like Dickinson. It does. Say more. Mine by the right to the white election. Yes. Dickinson talks about the white election. Um, what do you think white means there? It's an amazing sure. word. What did you say? Pure. Pure. Okay. So why not just pure sincerity? It's such a, it, it does sound like Dickinson. And Dickinson was obsessed with Herbert. Um, there were very few poets that Dickinson 
reread, let's say, because she didn't have to. Um, but Herbert was one of them. And so through Herbert, she would have at least had a fairly strong sense of Dunn, although I don't know that she ever actually read him. Um, I'm sure she did. You sure she did or didn't? Did, did. Sure she did. Go sorry. on, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, the, but it is, it's a really striking word. And you could paraphrase it as pure, but it feels like you'd lose something if you did that. Um, you know, it's, it's the Melville word also. Um, the whiteness of the whale. So why white sincerity? I also, I mean, white like a blank page. Mm -hmm. Like sincerity that is waiting to be inscribed upon as he's doing. Okay. That's not completely getting up It can be that. stained or it can be tarnished. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Grace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think pure would mean something like boasting. That is, look how pure I am. Don't, you know, accept my purity. But white has, <coughs> I think, the sense of um, tarnishable, but also not yet tarnished, or also possibly purifiable. It could go either way. Um, there's possibly a sense of the leprous there. That is, that without your help, this whiteness might simply turn into leprousness. Um, my muse needs you. It's sincere. It could be pure. Right now it's simply white. But do not with a vile crown of frail bays reward my muse's white sincerity. But with thy thorny crown gained, that give me. So what thorny crown is that? Jesus. Yeah, what, Dan? Yeah, the crown of thorns that, that he was crowned with in mockery um, during the Passion. And he says, give me that crown. So here's this sonnet, which is it's the sonnet sequence, which is itself a kind of crown. And what he now says is he doesn't want the crown of the poet laureate, but the crown, the thorny crown, which Christ himself gained. That give me a crown of glory, which doth flower always. And then from the word crown, he gets to the proverb, the end crown, the ends crown our works. That is, what happens crowns how we get there. That's a proverbial statement. So we all know that. The ends crown our works. When we succeed at what we're trying to do, that crowns the work we did to get there. Um, but then he switches that around, as we always see him doing. But thou crownst our ends. So the end crowns our works, but you crown our ends. That is, you crown um, where we get to and also what we want. For at our end, now end means what? At our end begins our endless rest. Yes. Right, so when we die, then our endless rest begins. For at our end begins our endless rest, which you will crown us with. This first, last, end, now zealously possessed with a strong, sober thirst, my soul attends. So my soul wants this first, last, end. 
um, first at, in importance, last as in the last thing that will ever happen to me, which is that I will get eternal rest and reward in heaven. Um, now zealously possessed, now that I have the idea of it, I want it zealously. My soul attends it, my soul awaits it with a strong, sober thirst. Tis time that heart and voice be lifted high. Salvation to all that will is nigh. So that's a great thing. All those who want salvation will get it. All you have to do to want to get salvation is to want it. And again, that's what the rejection of covenant gives you. It's not that you have to do things to be saved. All you have to do is want to be saved. Because wanting it shows that you believe. If you want to be saved, the, the kindest version of justification by faith, as it's sometimes called, is if you want to be saved, that's all you need. You will be saved. The very fact that you want it is what will save you. Um, and so salvation to all that will is nigh. So that's great. So here's the Annunciation. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. Um, so now we get from the general idea, remember there's a, there, what there is is a kind of um, interplay, a dialectic between time and timelessness. So now we get the Annunciation, that is to say um, Mary's pregnancy, um, which comes with the Annunciation. And so salvation to all that will is nigh. What does the word nigh mean in... Uh, yeah, it means near in both, but um, salvation to all that will is nigh at the end of the first sonnet means what? Just paraphrase that line as line 14 of the first sonnet. Okay, death is... Everyone's death is near, but also that everyone um, can find salvation. It's right next to them. Anyone who wants salvation, it's right there. All you have to do is want it. And it's it's nearby. It's there. Is that Lutheran doctrine, or not? that wouldn't be Lutheran? Um, it's of it's a an interpretation of Lutheran doctrine, um, and it's sometimes what Luther himself actually comes close. I don't know if he actually says it exactly like that, but he comes very close to saying it. Um, he says there's nothing better than the bondage of the will. You shouldn't complain about it. He has a he has a, a, a treatise of his uh, one of his most important treatises called the bondage of the will, and he says you may think this is bad, but actually it's great, um, and it should give you comfort. Yeah, I, I'm sorry if this throws you off. Just ignore it. But I, I, I'm confused because I don't understand how um, this is related to the doctrine of predestination, salvation to all that will is not. I mean, is it that insofar as you will it, that's a sign that you're predestined? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and um, so it sounds a little bit, and in fact this is another interpretation of Luther, um, probably fairly accurate, it sounds a little bit as though, well, you're substituting the need to will for the need to 
um, do good things. You at least need to will good things, and that seems to be um, not predestined, but voluntary. That doesn't seem to, to be the bondage of the will. But for Luther, it becomes two sides of the same coin. That is, um, if you will it, it's because God gave you the grace to will it. So if you want to be saved, um, then you can feel like, yeah, I really want this. It's not God who's making me want this. I want it. But what Luther, or what at least certain interpretations of Luther are saying is, yeah, and the reason you really want it is because God made you want it, and that's great. Um, so it feels, it can feel like there is this thing that looks like a work, which is the act of willing salvation, um, but it's also the sign that you both have and are your own salvation, just the way God has and art um, his treasury. Um, so if you want to be saved, then you are saved. Um, and it's not so much an urge, he's not so much urging you to want to be saved as reassuring you that if you want to be saved, you are saved. And he doesn't leave a possibility, you can be deceived well, some people think you can, yeah, and um, lots of people think you can, and that's where the, the whole Weberian idea of the Protestant work ethic, that wanting to be saved isn't enough because, because you, don't, you might be deceiving yourself, mm. and thinking that you want to be saved, but not really wholeheartedly. Um, and so can you wholeheartedly want to be saved, and then you get caught in the same toils? Right, the same death spiral. Yeah, the same death, death spiral <laughs> as justification by works. Um, but the kindest version, um, and I don't know that anyone is completely kind, although I think Herbert comes closest, mm. but the kindest version is um, almost you know anyone who wants to be saved thereby is saved, mm. just because they want to be. That means they are. Um, the um, probably Hooker, who wrote um, the Laws of Ecclesiastical Policy, which is the doctrine um, probably the closest thing to um, a long consideration of doctrine for the Anglican Church. Um, what he basically said was, if you're worried, um, then um, you should take some comfort in your worry. And he's not saying if you're worried, everything's fine. Um, but he's saying, if you're worried, that's what um, the experience of the saved is, is an experience of worry. And um, so you shouldn't. You, so it's okay to worry. Just don't worry too much. Um, don't let the don't let the worry be you know absolutely hellish for you, um, because the very fact that you're worried should comfort you for the fact that you're worried. Um, so the idea is that it's a combination of anxiety and comfort, rather than the comfort getting rid of the anxiety. The anxiety is is itself a kind of comfort, and. Um, that's the kind of kindness that Hooker and people like Hooker are offering. Um, so, but what does salvation to all that will is nigh mean as line one in the second stanza? Sonnet. Excuse me, sonnet and stanza, yes. Is it uh, impending? Impending, yes. Is that what you were going to say, Daniel? No. What were you going to say? <laughs> I was going to say, well, it says, the next line says that all, which always is all everywhere. So I thought maybe all is referring to God here rather than evil. Like yeah. changing the reference of um, So it's, yeah, and um, Dunn is certainly playing with the idea of all, but 
the idea here is that salvation to all that will is nigh um, means something like um, because God is all things and can extend and is omnipresent, is all present, and can extend his salvation to all things, the all um, to which salvation um, is close um, really is all things because that all which always is all everywhere is offering salvation to all. So God is all is in all things everywhere and therefore can offer salvation to all that will no matter where they are. Um, so if you so if you um, notice three versions of all in line two, that all which all ways is all <laughs> at all places, everywhere. So that's why all that will can know that God is right there. So yeah. that's saying, like, at each spot in space is all of God, not just part of God? That's, so um... That's why it is all everywhere? Um, yeah, it is saying that. Um, the famous version of this is that God is a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. What? Is that Pascal? It's, it's actually pre-Pascal, but... Oh. But it's Pascal too, yeah. So, so, um, so, yeah. God is is all things everywhere, um, completely contained. This also, this is also a question Augustine asks, which is: so, if God is everywhere, does that mean that I have a cup full of God in this cup? <laughs> um, how interesting that! Look, a cup full of God. I'm so cool. Look, I'm moving this cup full of God around. I am. I rule. Um, and Augustine says that's misunderstanding God um, to think that he can be partitioned that way because he's everywhere that he can be partitioned into little bits of God. Um, and uh, no, the point is that all of God is everywhere at every moment. Um, he's not, all here isn't an extended or spatialized concept. It's prior to space. Space comes from the allness of God rather than the allness of God, meaning that he simply fills space. Um, so that all, which always is all, everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die. Why can't he choose but die? Because he does, right? Yeah, and the only way to save us was to die. And the only way to save us was to become a human being who couldn't choose not to die. Low, faithful virgin yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. So what's happened to the second person, um, gram the grammatical second person between Sonnet 1 and Sonnet 2? First it's, it's done in the first one, right? No, it's actually God. Thou which of good hast, yea, art treasury. That's God. The Ancient of Days. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, all, and there's that word all again, all changing, unchanging, ancient of days. Um, in the second stanza, who's the thou? Low faithful virgin yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. Jesus? No, Mary. Mary. Yeah. 
he, God, yields himself to lie in your womb, O faithful virgin. Um, Lo there is sort of means O, but it also means um, um, become aware um, when you say, you know, lo, a tree. (laughs) Behold. It means behold. Um, And so that's the Annunciation. Um, And it's not that he's being the angel Gabriel telling the virgin that she is now pregnant with Jesus, but it's rather... Um, isn't that amazing? And it's as though, again, the, the single, punctual, one-time moment of the Annunciation is also something um, eternal and repeated from the beginning of time. That is, it's always amazing to think that suddenly Mary was pregnant with God, had God in her womb. That's always amazing to think. So the low is a kind of right now at this moment, just as at this moment Christ is crucified, but also eternally. It's an always repeated surprise, an eternal surprise. So the vow now has become the virgin, and God yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb, and that's why salvation to all that will is nigh, because what's about to happen? Yeah, yeah. So when she gives birth, then um, the Savior will be on earth, offering salvation to all that will. So now he's talking particularly about the birth of Christ. And so the nigh there is, um, you said impending, Nikki, was that right? Yeah. Yeah, so he's about to give birth. um, And so it's finally time. It's like vacation from the terrible school year of fallen human worlds is nigh. The endless summer vacation, because he's about to be born. Um, And he yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, so he's lying in prison, but he can't become born in original sin. Why? Because she's a virgin. So he's not born out of the sinful act of sexuality. So there he can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear taken from thence flesh which death's force may try. So even though he can't take sin, the very fact that he's born means what will happen to him. Yeah, all things that are born die, from the womb to the tomb. Rhyme teaches us it's inevitable. (laughs) So he is going to experience, the word try there means experience, struggle against, but also experience. Death's force. Ear, by the spheres, time was created. So there again, we're looking at being outside of time. Time is created by the spheres. Remember perturbation of the spheres, though greater far is men wonder what remember earthquakes? I wasn't here for the day of the sphere and it's come up so many times. <laughs> <laughs> um 
Okay, so the, the Ptolemaic idea of the universe is that they're, the universe is made of concentric spheres. The Earth is at the very center. Then there's a sphere, a kind of, um, if, you were, if you were making a glass model of it, like the Maparium at the Christian Science Center, um, which you, if you haven't been to see, you should see while you're in Boston. Um, there's the sphere of the moon, and so the moon is, it's as though we're surrounded by a glass or a transparent sphere, and the moon is um, part of that sphere, and the sphere is rotating around the Earth, which is the orbit of the moon. Um, following that is the sphere of Mercury, uh, I mean, excuse me, of Venus, which is a concentric sphere um, larger than the sphere of the moon, and Venus is within that sphere and going around it. Following that is the sun and Mars, etc. And so the spheres are the um, different levels of the heavens. That's why you sometimes call about talk about seventh heaven, like I was in seventh heaven. It's because it's the seventh sphere. The highest sphere is the seventh sphere. Um, and the music of the spheres is supposed to be a music angels can hear, which is the harmony of the way the spheres move with respect to each other. Um, so perturbation of the spheres means that the spheres are moving with respect to each other and producing music. And that's huge, much more important than little earthquakes but not destructive. Perturbation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. Um, so when there are earthquakes, men wonder what um, it did or meant, but perturbation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. So here, what we get is before the creation of the universe, before time was created by the spheres. So the idea is time is created perhaps when the sun is created because the sun rises and sets and therefore keeps time. Or the sun and the stars and the planets and the moon, all of those are astronomical time keepers. Um, but before that happened, before time itself was created, in the realm of eternity rather than sempiternity, again, ear by the spheres, time was created, Thou wast in his mind, who is thy son. So Christ was thinking of you at the beginning of time. Before time was created, you were in his mind. Even though he is your son, you were in his mind before time itself was created. So he who is thy son and brother, how is Christ Mary's brother? Um, you mean brother-in-law? Um, <laughs> Divine incest. Yeah. Yes. Um, no. Well, actually, isn't that the answer? Isn't divine incest that she is a creature of God? Well, <laughs> yes, in that sense, they're um, they're both human beings, and all human beings are brothers and sisters. Um, Milton has, again, a similar and really interesting set of lines when he talks about Adam and Eve as the happiest pair that ever since in love's embraces met. Adam, the goodliest man of men since born, the fairest of her daughters, Eve. So Adam is a son of Adam, as C.S. Lewis might call him. 
and Eve is the daughter of Eve because the sons of Adam are the males of the human species and therefore Adam being a male is the son of Adam. Um, the daughters of Eve are the females of the human species and therefore Eve being female is a daughter of Eve. Um, so in that sense also, because Jesus is human, he's a brother to all other human beings. And um, so he is both your son. Um, he was, you were in his mind before time was created. In whose mind? In him who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived. So you conceive him in what sense? Understand? No, that's the second conceived. Okay. Um, so birth him? Yeah, well, well, you become pregnant with him. However that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Conception is a blessing, as Hamlet says to Polonius. Yeah. Um, you've conceived a child. Um, you've conceived the child, Jesus, through the word of God, through the Annunciation. So, um, whom thou conceivest, he conceived you. That is, he had the idea of you in his mind. The very person that you have now conceived in your womb um, had the idea of you in his mind before the beginning of time. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark and shutst in little room immensity cloistered in thy dear woo. So you have all that immensity, all that ubiquitousness, all that all which always is all everywhere is now in your womb. Therefore, in the darkness of your womb, you have light, and you shut in the little room of your womb immensity itself, because you are your maker's maker and your father's mother. Because he's God, therefore, like the father, and you are the mother of God. Yeah. I just um, wanted to know what you make of the fact that um, he uses the same image in the flea, cloistered in those walls of jet. Yes. Mixing the blood. Yeah. Um, what do you make of that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what do you make of that? <laughs> uh, well, it's just interesting to me that the contexts are so dramatically different. You know, mm -hmm. One is this poem about sex and the other is... I mean, and then the image is strange, but that he, um, I mean, you must have all talked about this before, that, that he doesn't mind employing the same conceits in a secular and in a religious context. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, to the extent that we talked about this, it has something to do with the ferociousness of his being willing to follow up um, any suggestion, no matter how strange and grotesque, and um, his sense that um, this is what we were talking about on on Tuesday, that um, the grotesquery of of um, potential analogy and potential metaphor makes thinking hard, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. That anything that makes thinking hard is good. Um, anything that makes thinking easy is misleading, and. Um, and what makes thinking hard is finding, again, to use the word that he used in, in um, the Holy Son that we were just looking, looking at, the naughtiness of the world is its most important gift to us, is how naughty everything is. 
Um, so it's an anti, it's an aesthetic which is against effortlessness. Um, so the, to the extent, you know, in the flea, he's comparing the flea to the trinity, um, closer within these living walls of jet, um, and that looks totally blasphemous, but the very fact that the completely blasphemous and the completely holy can be the same metaphysical conceit, to use the word conceive again, can apply to both, um, says something about the extent of God's descent into the material world and into the sheer recalcitrance and difficulty and strangeness and grotesquerie of the material world. Um, that's the religious aspect of metaphysical conceits, that God, who could do everything effortlessly, instead gives himself over to the most grotesque and difficult um, effort um, of thought, of, of matter, of, um, of um, just getting stuck in the, um, the, the material nature of the world. And that's certainly the case here. I mean, the image is, it's grotesque. It is grotesque itself. I mean, he's, the way he calls attention, it's a preposterous idea that all of this infinity is going to be somehow shrunk down to in a package that can be inserted in Mary's womb. Yeah, yeah. Appalling. There also may be a <laughs> reference here to, to um, the Jew of Malta, um, where a famous line in Marlowe's Jew of Malta is um, the Jew of Malta looking at all his wealth, um, talks about infinite riches in a little room. Mm. And that's a line that Shakespeare picks up in As You Like It, um, quotes it almost exactly in As You Like It. Um, and so there's that, that's also really interesting that somehow even the idea of, of wealth and money, which just seems so, you know, it's filthy lucre, but it's the filth that matters. Um, God embraces the filth. So yeah, it is grotesque. Okay, nativity means what? Right, yeah. So we've had the Annunciation. Now we have the Nativity. He's born. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. So notice also how what's happening is the line itself. It's almost as though Sonnet 2 now releases that line into Sonnet 3. So what had been the end of Sonnet 2, um, which is the imprisonment of Jesus in the womb of Mary now leaves it to become immensity closer to thy dear womb, now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. He's born, partly because he's too big to stay in your womb any longer. So immensity now just means, you know, this is, you, you can think of this as a very human moment, just that moment, which is, um, he pops out. He's too big to stay there any longer. Um, Wow, there he is, eight pounds, two ounces. Um, or what would he be? Four talents. Um, how big was he? Four talents. Wow. Um, immensity closer to thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough now into our world to come. So what did he do in the nine months of his... Um, became a human being. he became a human being and he grew what most um, 
fetuses do is they grow strong enough to be born. What did he do over those nine months? He grew weak enough. He made himself weak enough now into our world to come. But oh, for thee, for him, hath the in no room. Um, so the thee here is obviously still Mary. So no room at the inn means what? They have to go to the manger. Right. Um, so he's made himself really small and human. And even so, the inn doesn't have room for him. So notice how he's turning that idea of um, no room at the inn turns into a um, interesting um, indication of just how selfish humans are that God, who made himself as little as he could possibly be, was still not little enough to find room in the end. Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Um, sorry, and yet lay him in the stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's je jealous general doom. Um, so what is the effect? What does Herod want to do? Kill Jesus. Yeah, he wants to. He's killing all the firstborn, um, much as Pharaoh did in the time of Moses. That's a type to which Jesus is the antitype. Remember, we talked about that a little bit. So that's another way that the Old and the New Testament are related. <laughs> that the story of Pharaoh attempting to kill all the firstborns of Israel. Um, in order to avoid um, the birth of their liberator um, or all the young boys of Israel. Um, now becomes Herod, killing all the firstborn of um, the Hebrews. And so there he is in the stall. Herod wants to kill them all, but he's hidden there. And now we get to a different thou. Seest thou my soul? So the thou has gone from Mary to, now he's going to address someone else, his own soul. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? So there again, he fills everywhere and is still not held by all he fills, and yet here he is lying in this stall. Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? So didn't he show you, you, O oh my soul, immense pity by putting himself in a position where he needs your pity in order to survive? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go. That is, escape with him to Egypt. Stay with him no matter what. Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go with his kind mother who partakes thy woe. So if you go with him into Egypt, if you care about him, if you kiss him, if you pity him, then you will be a sister to, you will be a brother, or you, O soul, as a female, will be a sister to Mary, who also pities him and feels woe and anxiety on behalf of her son. <coughs> so go with them in their flight into Egypt, and then we get to temple that is Christ confuting 
the rabbis in the temple, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe, Joseph turned back. So who's the thy there? Joseph. Yeah. So the thy has switched from his soul to Joseph. Who's Joseph? Mary's husband. Mary's husband. Yeah. The father of Jesus's siblings. Um, so you feel woe, Joseph, um, as does Jesus's kind mother, but turn back. Look what's happening. See where your child doth sit blowing, yea, blowing out those sparks of wit which himself on those doctors did bestow. So he's blowing on the sparks of intelligence to make them flame up, but they're getting things so wrong. Do people know the story of him confuting the rabbis in the temple? Anyone? Do you have a footnote? Uh, the, the learned men whom, with whom the boy Jesus conversed in the temple, the episode was usually interpreted as the first display of Christ's powers as both man and God. Yeah, so basically they had an argument, a Talmudic argument about various aspects of the law, and um, he beat them. Um, he understood it better. Um, so he blew up the sparks. Their intelligence, whatever intel religious intelligence they had, came from him. But then he blew them out because they were getting things so wrong. So blowing, yea, blowing out those sparks of wit, which himself on those doctors did bestow. The word, but lately could not speak. So what does that mean? Who's the word? Yeah. Well, it's more than that. Um, in the beginning was the word. Well, so the word is often, um, the beginning of the Gospel of John is not in the beginning God created heaven and earth, but in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, so that's how the Gospel of John begins, and um, that is always taken to mean that Jesus is the word of God. That is, that as the son of God, he is... Um, the word which says let there be light and is therefore the utterance of God which is itself God comes out of God as it's as God's um, um, uh, child as God's offspring and itself has the power of God and therefore is God so again what you will see in Paradise Lost or have seen in Paradise Lost is that at the creation of the world, God sends the word and the spirit to create the world, and the word is Jesus, or is the son of God, he's never called Jesus in um, Paradise Lost, the word is the son and the spirit is the Holy Ghost. So, Jesus is the word, the word is God. Um, so, the word but lately could not speak, why not? He's a baby. He's a baby. So, look, here's the word, and a little while ago, it couldn't speak. It was just a little baby. And lo, and there's that word lo again, and lo, it suddenly speaks wonders. <coughs> Whence comes it that all which was and all which should be writ, a shallow-seeming child should deeply know? So this little child in the temple knows more 
than anyone else in the world. How is that? His godhood was not soul to his manhood, nor had time mellowed him to this ripeness. So it's not that um, when Jesus was born, and this is again a huge argument about um, the divinity of um, Jesus and whether he was all God or all man or half God and half man or what, um, or simultaneously all God and all man. Um, but what Dunn is taking the position, which is a Protestant, a Protestant position, which is that in becoming human, he became fully human. That is, he was God, but now as a human being, he is fully human, although a perfect human. Um, and therefore, it's not that he could confute the rabbis in the temple because um, he knew it all already. He couldn't speak. He had to learn language. He wasn't born being able to speak language. He didn't say, here I am, Mary, and there you are, just as I conceived you before the spheres began time. <laughs> what he said, what he did was cry, as any baby does. But he was so amazing that by the time he was 12 years old, he had understood the Bible better than anyone else. So his Godhead was not soul to his manhood, nor had time mellowed him to this ripeness. But as for one which hath a long task, tis good with a son to begin his business, he in his age's mourning thus began by miracles exceeding power of man. So he worked at it from the start because he knew how much he had to do, and it was miraculous. And then we get to the crucifying, the crucifixion. By miracles exceeding power of man, he faith in some, envy in some begat. So now we're talking about particular miracles that he, is, that he Jesus, has done that the Gospels have told. So he's done miracles that exceed the power of man, so he gave faith to some by doing that, envy to others. For what weak spirits admire, ambitious spirits hate. So those who were weak and knew they were weak because we're all weak, they admired him. But those who were ambitious and angry and didn't want him to be king of the Jews and to be the Messiah and the salvation of the world, they hated him. In both affections, many to him ran. So there he was, this incredibly important person everyone was talking about. And those who admired him and those who hated him, they both ran to him in order to do whatever it was they wanted to do, to ask him for blessing or to kill him. But oh, the worst or most, they will and can, alas, and do unto the immaculate whose creature fate is now prescribe a fate. So again, notice that reversal there. Fate is his creature. The word creature literally means, does anyone know? We always take it to mean animals, like, oh, look at that little critter. Um, but look at the first five letters in creature. Create. Yeah. Creation. Yeah, so creature <laughs> is what a creator creates is a creature. A creature is a create. A creature, a creature <laughs> is a created being. So fate is created by God. His creature, the immaculate, that is the completely unsinful, 
free from all spot of sin. Fate is his creature, is his creation, but now they who hate him the worst or most, and what they do is they prescribe a fate unto that very person who's created fate. And what is Jesus' fate? Crucifying, yeah, death. They prescribe that fate to him, measuring self-life's infinity to a span, nay, to an inch. So the life itself, self-life must mean something like life itself, the infinity of life itself is measured to a span or even less to an inch. Lo, where condemned he bears his own cross with pain, yet by and by, when it bears him, he must bear more and die. So again, you have that reversal. He's bearing the cross that will bear him, but when the cross bears him that he's now bearing, he will bear still more. He will bear his own death, which is unbearable. He wants that burden. His last prayer is, take this burden from me but he can't, so he will bear more and die. Now thou art lifted up. Who's the thou there? Jesus. Yeah. So having said all this, he now looks at him. Now thou art lifted up. Draw me to thee, and at thy death, giving such liberal dole, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. So give me a drop of your blood to moisten my dry soul. Um... Again, notice that all those reversals, that he is everything, all, everywhere in the, in the, but now lies in prison in the womb, that he is bearing the cross that must bear him while he bears more. All of that is the weaving of the crown. That is that every time you get a reversal like that, it's a weaving. You should see that as a kind of weaving of the very idea of he bears the cross which bears him, which causes him to bear more. So all the images, all those reversals here are parts of the weaving. So then he prays to God, he done prays to God, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. Then resurrection, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. What's happened to the word moist? It's a verb. It's a verb. Yeah, now it's an adjective. It's gone from being a verb to an adjective. So at the end of five, it's moist means moisten. At the end of six, it's my soul, moist with one drop of thy blood, shall, though she now be in extreme degree too stony hardened yet too fleshly, be freed by that drop from being starved hard or foul. So um, the word moist, he wanted to be moistened, and he was. So when that happens, he will be freed. And life by this death abled shall control death whom thy death slew. So again, there's that weaving, your death slew death. Nor shall to me fear of first or last death bring misery. If in thy little book my name thou enroll, flesh in that long sleep is not putrefied, but made that there of which and for which twas. So it is made that for which it was created, nor can by other means be glorified, 
May then sins, sleep, and deaths soon from me pass, that wait from both I may, I again risen may salute the last and everlasting day. So when I wake up, I may salute the last and everlasting day, and then we get the ascension. So it's, this is um, after Christ's resur- resurrection, he ascends to heaven, and so we, so he, so Dunn calls upon us now. The addressee of this is us. Salute the last and everlasting day. Joy at the uprising of this sun and sun. Ye whose just tears or tribulation have purely washed or burnt your drossy clay. Behold the highest parting hence away lightens the dark clouds which he treads upon, nor doth he by ascending show alone, but first he, but first he and he first enters the way, O strong ram, because it's Easter, it's the sign of Aries which has battered heaven for me, mild lamb, which with thy blood has marked the path, bring bright torch, which shineth that I may, that either way may see, or with thine own blood quench thine own just wrath, and if thy Holy Spirit my muse did raise, deign at my hands this crown of prayer and praise. And then we're back at the beginning, and we, it's worth wondering which sonnet he wrote first. That is, you can see reasonably that um, he wrote the sonnets in order because each last line is the first line of the next one. So you can see reasonably that he would have had to finish the sonnet before really embarking on the next one. But it's worth wondering which one he wrote first because if you now go back to the first one, he's offering the whole crown. That is, he's saying, take these seven sonnets, which means in some sense that they have to have already been written with the last one first. So the last shall be first. But also notice that that brings up that question of time and timelessness. That is, once the crown is done, it's a self-sustaining structure, and you can't really say which one happened first. The story comes in an order, but the writing of the story doesn't imply that it's written in that same order. It's the Nicene Circle again. Yes, exactly. Okay, um, John, we're done with done. Wow. I know. And now we're Jones in for Johnson, right? <laughs>